Toto. How's everybody going? Cool, I'm Sam. Um, it's really nice to be here um, to talk about I am the true vine and you are the branches. And I can see that this is sliding down. So do I just accept my fate? Yeah, I think I will. That's all right. I'll just, I'll just do this. It's all right. I don't need it that high, actually. Thank you, though. Um, cool. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, so, yeah, the, the true vine passage, this is one of the, the famous I am statements made by Jesus, uh, and uh, it's right before his death, so he's talking to his disciples, so it's very important what he's saying. Um, and it's, it's probably a line that you've heard around hundreds of times, um, but this passage that we've just read, every line could be like a sermon by itself. It's one of those things. It's, you read this speech of Jesus, and it's uh, just so full of meaning. Um, but to make sure um, I wasn't like going widely off track, I did what some people do, which is, you know, considered like not necessarily great practice by preaching. And you kind of check out what other preachers have done just to make sure you're um, not totally gone off, uh, off track and the cheese is totally slid off the cracker. But I did uh, look at what one major preacher had said about this. And this major preacher <laughs> said that this, uh, this uh, image of Jesus was stupid and pathetic, that were the words he used, um, which was really surprising um, to me. Uh, and I get it, I get what he means, it's like we're branches, it's not a very flattering image, you get the idea. Uh, but I think this is one of the cases of uh, not remembering perhaps that the majority of the Bible is in fact the Old Testament, and uh, we can actually get a lot from that. Um, and the Old Testament is a world that Jesus totally inhabits, and he's drawing a lot of sense of who he is from that. And so, there's actually a long tradition of vine vineyard imagery throughout the entire Bible that Jesus is drawing on to say what he's saying here. Um, and you can't really make sense of it without this tradition. Um, and so if, if you've seen many of the Marvel movies in, in the movie Endgame, you've got all these portals opening and uh, one of the characters flies through and it's, he says, on your left, which is actually a, a reference to a movie like 10 movies before. And you don't really get what he's saying unless you've seen that movie. It's kind of like that. I'm sorry that I made a Marvel reference in the first two minutes. That's terrible practice. You kind of get what I'm saying. It's kind of a bit of a callback. Um, because I think if you don't know the tradition that this uh, line sits in, you're going to hear some of that passage in ways that it wasn't intended for. So you're going to hear things like burned up, and you're going to get dark visions of Dante's Inferno and start to freak out about who God is. Um, and I think where most sermons go with the abide in me or remain in me phrase is just up your quiet times, pray a little bit more. That's, that's what it means. And absolutely don't want to disagree with that, and I think that's part of it. Uh, but I think uh, this is far more meaningful than that. Um, so what I'd like to do this morning is two things. I'd like to go for a whistle-stop tour through some of the passages of the Old Testament uh, that mention vines and vineyards to build up a sense of what it's actually saying, and then really dig into, well, what does that mean for us in the 21st century as we approach that text? So that's kind of what we're going to do this morning, and I hope that kind of makes sense. It's a game of two halves. All right, so let's, uh, let's do... The, the work. So let's look at some of these passages. So the first one we're going to look at is Isaiah 5, um, where the prophet is talking about a loved one. He's describing God uh, and describing how he planted a vineyard uh, in a fertile place. He cleared the ground, uh, protected it, looked after it. Uh, but when, the, when God looked at the vine, um, it had only produced bad fruit. Uh, and then it makes it very explicit at the end of the passage. It says, 
The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel. So this is what the vineyard is. And the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. Um, And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So making it very explicit, what we're talking about here is Israel in a very strong sense. So they were supposed to be showing the world what God was really like. Um, But they were actually demonstrating something completely at odds with his character. As you can hear, it's bloodshed and injustice. He wanted good fruit, um, and they were actually pretty bad apples. Um, And then you see later on in Isaiah 27, on the other side, you've got, um, I sing about a fruitful vineyard, I the Lord watch over it. And he talks about going to war against thorns and anything that tries to kill his plants, uh, saying that he will burn these enemies up. And so you start to see this burning up imagery appear through these vineyard passages as well. Um, And it says at the end of that, um, uh, sing about a fruitful vineyard, I the Lord watch over it. And then we jump to Ezekiel 15. You see some of these themes begin to get developed a little bit more. Um, And this is a really interesting one because God says to the people that, The only thing a vine is good for is for producing fruit. It's not like other wood that you can chop down and make things for and make things with. It's simply just good for bearing fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, you're acting like you're dead. I don't know what to do with you apart from to maybe throw you away and burn you up. So that's where that sort of imagery starts to get developed. And he says, As I have given the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest as fuel for the fire, so I will treat the people living in Jerusalem this sort of warning of, actually, if you don't stay attached as the vine and living like you're supposed to, you're not doing the one thing that you're made to do. Then it's getting pretty hectic. Uh, And so in Ezekiel 19, the prophet is then describing uh, that in earlier times of Israel, it was like your mother was like a vine in your vineyard planted by the water. Now, the vine has been ripped up by the wind and uses imagery like it's been blown around and once again burned up. And it seems what God keeps saying is, what else can you do with a vine that is basically dead? Uh, I wish it was alive. It was made to be abundantly alive. And then the prophet Jeremiah also picks this image up, saying, um, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. Uh, how then did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? The point is becoming clearer, I think. Um, you're here for a purpose uh, and you're up to something else entirely. Um, and then in Jeremiah 12, uh, it warns that God is so frustrated with their evil uh, that he's going to abandon their vineyard and their lack of fruit will be a source of shame, saying, many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. And then in Hosea, it's explained that in the good old days that Israel was a spreading vine. He brought forth fruit for himself. Uh, and then goes on to say now that Israel is overgrown, it's gotten its own way, and it's actually sowed seeds of its own destruction. Um, and the prophets are warning over and over again, guys, you're here for one purpose, <laughs> to the bear the fruit of God, to be the vine that God tends to. Uh, what are you doing? Uh, you're acting like none of that means anything. You've forgotten who you are. And then we get to Psalm 80. Uh, I think I've got that. Yeah. So 
we probably have here, I think, the clearest relation to Jesus's words about the vine. This is where I think you see the, the biggest similarity here. Um, it tells the story of Israel uh, through its high point and then into its low, saying, you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared the ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches, its branches reached as far as the sea, its shoots as far as the river. Then it goes on later to say, your vine is cut down, it is burned with fire. There we see that imagery again. At your rebuke, the people perish. Let your hand rest on the man at your right hand, the son of man you have raised up for yourself. Then we will not turn away from you. Revive us and we will call on your name. So we're beginning to see some familiar themes start to get all brought together here. And I just want to draw attention to a couple of things. Um, the burning fire is something that has happened already and is still happening to the people in response to their lack of faithfulness with God. Basically, the dynamic is God says, well, you're acting like you don't really want me around. So he effectively steps back and says, okay, I'm going to let you do what you want. And it leads to their own destruction uh, because he was the vine dresser, the one tending to them and protecting them. But then there's this little mention of this son of man uh, that God is with. And when he is seen, the people will turn back. This is pretty loaded, all this imagery. So for the Jews of the first century, uh, they are sitting in this tension and insecurity, I think, of not feeling like they're right with God, um, of sitting, of being this vine gone bad, asking how long will God turn his back on us and when will it all be made right again? So that's all the stuff sitting in the background for Jesus. And then enter on stage left, the Son of Man that this passage is talking about. And now I think, now that we've kind of got that under our belts, we're kind of now loaded with meaning and actually ready to hear what Jesus is actually saying with a bit more clarity. So let's just look at a chunk of that again. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. Uh, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Uh, already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered thrown into the fire, and burned. So as you can see, Jesus is picking up on all of the language from this old image that everybody knows so well and has answered it. It is no longer the people of Israel that are the vine. He is the true vine, right? He is the true Israel. That's what he's saying. Um, he is the vine that could bear fruit properly. Um, he is the answer to the question. Uh, he could do what none of us could have. He is the vine that won't get corrupted, that won't get in its own way, uh, that is truly alive and living as though it is not actually dead. And I actually got a little bit emotional as I reread this passage again after doing that work because I was like, whoa, you know, suddenly appreciation for the tradition and 
for those to whom it belonged to. Um, and you're just sitting there imagining these people hearing these words for the first time, realizing the profundity of what Jesus is actually saying to them. What he's saying is something similar to this. What you couldn't do all this time, I am doing now. Therefore, you don't need to sit with this insecurity about where you sit with God. In me, you're where you should be. You're clean. You'll bear the fruit you're always supposed to. Suddenly, all of these images are rushing forward and saying, it's all found its answer in him. And of course, Jesus would say, any branch that's not connected to me is as good as dead and will be burned up. That's the story of the Old Testament. <laughs> this is what keeps happening. Um, in, in, in ways that no one would ever have anticipated, uh, Jesus is basically saying, your exile is over. God's back. God still smiles upon you, and in me you can be fully alive in ways that you are always meant to be. You're here to be fully alive. And can you imagine how healing that would have been for, for those who have waited so long to hear that? Can you imagine the relief and the joy of those that heard those words? Um, the true vine has made a way back for us. And we, in this room, have been grafted on to the vine that God has committed to. It's a callback, but it's not just a callback, it's a fulfillment. And the imagery now has been completely rearranged. This is really significant that Jesus has pulled all of this together. And the thing is, and often we can often like get a little bit judgmental about how Israel managed this. The thing is, there's a difficulty about being God's vineyard. It's super intense. It's not comfortable. What Israel reveals is that it's too intense for human beings to actually be in relationship with God like that and actually live up to our end of the bargain. In many ways, we have to go to school with Israel to see that it's actually us that can't hold our end of the bargain up either. We need someone to stand in the gap. Here is the true vine. This is very good news. So what does that actually mean for us in the 21st century, New Zealand, reading this ancient text that has its own history and callbacks and asking what it's saying to us? Well, if you're eagle-eyed, uh, you would have noticed that uh, there's a fair uh, mention of pruning going on uh, in this passage. Uh, and it's actually uncomfortable for Israel to go through this. Uh, and this is why they tapped out so many times. It was too intense. It's not fun to be a vine or a branch connected to God. Um, it may be surprising to you, uh, but I am not much of a gardener. I don't do a hell of a lot of gardening. Um, my hair is actually uh, enough management by itself, which is basically why I wear the beanie. It's not because I'm cold, it's because I'm lazy. Um, so I did some Googling, did some research, and uh, I was sort of checking out what it meant to prune a vine properly. Uh, it turns out that it's pretty violent. Um, it looks like when you prune a vine properly, it's hacked down too far, like you've gone way too far with this. It's a bit extreme, like kind of no mercy with this vine. But it's for its own good, um, because if you don't, the vine kind of grows inwards on itself. It, it gets in its own way. Uh, it shuts the sunlight out for itself. It grows bad fruit. Uh, it basically leads to a whole bunch of wasted energy, uh, waste of fruit, and the branches need to be cut off for life to emerge again. 
It's a necessary thing that it has to go through. So it turns out this is a very useful image. This isn't pathetic or stupid at all. In fact, I'd say it's probably one of the best images we have for Christian spirituality. But the thing is, in the passage, the knife comes for all the branches, if you notice that. Some of them he's pruning, some of them he's lopping off altogether. The knife comes for all the branches. That's his job. We just kind of get to decide what that cutting means. Uh, and if you're anything like me, that language can make you feel a little bit uneasy, a little bit like God's a bit of a scary tyrant. Uh, it's a bit uncomfortable. Um, and, and to be fair, if you want like a, a really comfortable faith that makes you feel like an inner sense of peace and it's nice and uh, gives you a sense of comfort, there are better spiritualities out there. I definitely suggest go for like a nice therapeutic spirituality um, that helps you center yourself and pass out or something. I don't know. But actually, I think pruning Although it's foreign to us and uncomfortable, it's one of the most tender, uh, tender languages that we can use for describing how God deals with us um, because we're in his vineyard being pruned. So this is kind of how the dynamic works. In life, uh, things come our way and things are taken from us and God prunes us through life. Uh, And this is not saying that God sends bad things in order to make us better people. That's not what I'm saying. Please stay away from any theology like that. But the point is, actually, living in truth hurts sometimes. um, Because we can't run to our pleasant little fictions uh, for comfort. And take refuge in those things. The ways we wish life could be or would like it to be. Dreams die. (laughs) Um, relationships end Uh, careers hit dead ends or end altogether we experience huge losses we get to know pain and disappointment and we get our hopes up only to have them hugely disappointed at times and the point is there are so many points in which we have to let go of things Uh, and in letting go we have to decide whether those things will push us into resentment or bitterness because we actually kind of needed those things for a sense of life and identity or an opportunity to see that we were drawing our life from something that will ultimately let us down and deform us. I think what's implied here is that if we're asked, uh, like a vine to abide in Jesus because we are so often drawing life from other things, Uh, And this was the mistake of Israel time and time again, hoping for things that other nations did and acting like them. And it's still the same for us. But God is committed to us becoming fully human. So he prunes us. And I know when I'm not abiding in Christ (laughs) um, because the good things I have turn into things that I need um, to give me a sense of identity like I'm okay. Uh, because I'm not just enjoying them anymore. Um, I am drawing my life from them. I am building my identity from them, and I need them to feel okay. Um, I end up getting frustrated that these things aren't delivering the kind of life that I think I should have, and I get angry that people aren't aligning with the vision of how life should go either. Um, So that turns me into that insular person at times. Uh, I get closed off, often resentful, um, 
overly judgmental. I hold grudges, uh, bearing it all out there, spilling my guts. Um, I can feel both superiority and inferiority at the same time because I'm just locked into comparison. Um, I'm overly competitive and fearful. Uh, and it often leads to complete detachment and removing myself from all the other branches uh, because my hopes are set in the demands that I'm placing on life. It needs to be this way because I know who I'm supposed to be. When I'm abiding in Christ, though, <laughs> uh, I'm a, compl- a completely different human being emerges. Um, I'm generous. I am encouraging. I have joy in giving to other people. Um, I think about others, and I often I'll feel a portion of how God feels about them. Um, I stop treating people like inconveniences um, and like a privilege to be with um, because all the good things I have are just good things and people are gifts, not a means to an end. So our spirituality is often about asking God to prune away the things that have become more than just good things for us. We have to, we've started to require them in poisonous ways often. But sometimes we are actually forced into this as well. We don't ask for it, we're forced into it. Um, so one example of this is, is about 10 years ago, uh, it was one of the many instances in which I had to learn this the, the hard way. Um, like a few young men, um, I went into ministry or church work because I really enjoyed uh, being on stage and being respected uh, for saying things. Um, really enjoyed getting complimented on my communication and intelligence. It was a really good time. Um, and I was involved in growing a successful youth, uh, sorry, young adults ministry. And um, in my mind, I was, I was really becoming someone. Um, I was getting my name out there and I was speaking at things and I thought I was pretty important. Um, I was getting a lot of identity from being on a stage. Um, I was getting a lot of life from this. And, and like a bad vine, uh, I was twisting myself up in knots, uh, and there was some pretty bad fruit that was emerging from that. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was fast becoming a Theo bro, uh, which is basically someone who just takes great pleasure in like taking other people down in theological arguments because that's cool. Um, I literally was indirectly telling people off from the pulpit because I had the microphone. I could do that. It was bad. And I basically, like, I've gotten to the point where I feel like, felt like the church might fall over if I wasn't involved because I was the man. Um, the thing is, I eventually got to the edge of a breakdown. <laughs> and I had to quit really suddenly because I just wasn't coping. I couldn't keep the charade going. Um, the pedestal essentially began to terrify. I mean, actually, when I started preaching here, Newt had to kind of coach me, like, it's going to be okay. Um, I was abiding in the promise of a life offered through reputation, and it was strangling me. Um, so I had to step away. Uh, and this is a really hard lesson to learn in my 20s, uh, because suddenly I felt like I was no one without the stage. Um, who was I when no one was listening to me? I didn't know. It was like an agonizing few months, um, and I had to let go and learn again that my identity wasn't based in any of this. It was something else. It was brutal. <laughs> but it was so good for me. Um, and I think about what would have happened to me if I'd been allowed to carry on in that direction, that trajectory, and I shudder 
Uh, look at other stories of people that have been allowed to do that, and yeah, it's a, it's a bad time. I reckon people would have been mentioning me in podcasts as they unpacked their spiritual trauma and what church had done to them. Um, I'm not even joking. It was, it was the mercy of God, I think, that I was pruned at that point and said, that's enough. You need to relearn who you really are. And this is actually why I make a habit pretty much in every sermon of uh, like showing why I'm not the man as much as I can because um, I, I don't want that kind of pressure. And I need to know that you know that I know that I'm not it, okay? So that's kind of the, the thing going on. I'm not it. Um, and I've had lots of other similar things in my life that I've had to let go of and prune that way that I've been drawing life in. Like it took me a long time to accept that my band would not be the next switchfoot, um, a long time to accept that one. But there's a long list of things that God's had to chop off for, for my benefit. And if I'd let it, uh, it actually could have caused me to give up on God, I think. Um, and while at many points I was dragged kicking and screaming, um, God has taught me and he's still teaching me that I can't be finding life in any of those things. Uh, I've got to stop uh, building a life for myself in all these little babels and uh, abide with him. The only source that won't disappoint. Uh, the one who can turn all these little deaths into life. Raising the dead in me. Uh, making me more fully alive. Is that making sense? Hmm. <laughs> a few years ago, I'm going to do a Theo bro thing. I've just realized that I've completely gone against what I thought I'd been pruned in. So consider me rebuked by myself. A bunch of Christians a few years ago, um, online especially, started picking up on this famous quote from St. Irenaeus, which says, uh, the glory of God is the human being uh, fully alive. Uh, and people were lapping up this quote and using it to justify whatever made them come alive. Um, so, you know, like, I don't know, trips to Bali or, you know, wellness centers and things like that. Like, no, it's like I'm feeling fully alive and that's what God wants. And you're like, cool, bro. Um, but the thing is that this quote is actually found in a much larger passage about martyrdom. Uh, and it has a second part. So it goes, the glory of God is the human person fully alive and to be alive consists in beholding God. We need that second part uh, because we are branches that need the vine. Otherwise, we grow in our own way, deciding what makes us come alive and actually ends up destroying us. What I'm really saying, and I think what Jesus is saying too, is that actually this is incredibly positive and that we are made for far more than we know. Um, this is what Paul means, I think, in Romans when he says we've fallen short of the glory of God. It's not that we've failed to reach God's standard of morality. It's actually we have failed, we've missed the glory that we ourselves were made for. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We've become dehumanized. And I think this is also what he means uh, later on when he says, um, all things work together for those who love God. It's not that he's using earthly means for cosmic ends or that he's just sending stuff our way uh, to make us better people and like we'll deal with tests and get better. The whole passage there in Romans 8 is actually all about the spirit making us more like Jesus. <laughs> so actually this whole thing is the good that it talks about, all things work for good, is you get to look more like the son of man, the true vine. That's the whole point. That's the good that emerges. That's the fruit. And I think this is also what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the poor, those who mourn or are, or are persecuted, because these are people that have lost big, and now with blinding clarity, 
they, and now they know that none of those things could have actually got what uh, they wanted. They're living in reality. Um, now suffering is a pruning. God is working in the wounds. And this is what, uh, why Hans uh, Ruckmarker would say, Jesus didn't come to make us Christians. Jesus came to make us fully human. It's about becoming fully alive. So my question for all of us this morning as I wrap up is, uh, where are you drawing life from? This is uh, a simple question that never, ever goes away. It doesn't matter how old you are. We always have to be kept being asked this question. Where are you drawing life from? Are you abiding in Christ? What are your hopes really based in? Sometimes we can even dress up uh, dark ambition with spiritual language. I am a master of that. So <clears throat> is, it, is it in making it, whatever that is to you? Is that, is that what you're drawing on, what you're, what you're putting your hope in? Or is it the identity that you get from your family or children? And is that leading to a sense of control because you need this to be a certain way to be drawing life from? Are you pinning all your hopes on a relationship or being recognized at work? Are you like me and you feel like you're nothing without some sort of reputation? Or have you bought into the Kiwi dream of just living a chill life and what you're really hoping in is just a like peaceful, undisturbed existence and God's calling you into more? Who are you without these things? What does God need to prune? Because everything that is not him will let you down and will deform you uh, if you draw life from those things instead. We get to enjoy these things, uh, but not as sources of life. Don't build on sand. Uh, Hear what he has to say. A new kind of life wants to emerge from us. Will we choose to keep abiding in him? So we're going to do communion in a minute, um, which really is a way of you know, actively participating in drawing on the true vine. Uh, but before we do that, um, I will just pray for us as we do that. So if you'd like to join me in prayer as we pray for ourselves, the church, and our work in the world as we learn to uh, build on Christ. Lord, we want to thank you that we don't have to worry about being good enough to be the vine. You are the true vine. Uh, You are what gives us life, and we don't have to drum that up for ourselves. And we want to thank you that you prune who you love. And Lord, would you you soften us this morning? Would you make us uh, open to your pruning? Uh, Would your spirit gently press on us this morning the things that actually we're holding on to tightly? May we offer things up that we uh, aren't just holding as good things, but we are are holding on because we feel like we need them. Would you do your pruning work, Lord? Would you help us to let go where we need to let go, to trust you that we have more life than we could possibly imagine on the other side of that? We trust in your spirit. We trust that in all these things, you work for the good of those who love you. Help us to trust in your pruning work and not resist that discomfort. Thank you for that your son made this possible. Amen.